Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. My guest today, Robert Malley, is the new president and CEO of the International Crisis Group. He took over on January 1st. The International Crisis Group, of course, provides the public and policymakers with analysis of conflicts and potential ways out of conflict around the world. And as regular listeners of this show probably know, it is one of my go-to resources for understanding crises and conflicts around the world. And analysts from the Crisis Group are regular guests on this show. And you know, to that end, I didn't actually realize this when I reached out to Rob for the interview, but I've now had every single president of the International Crisis Group as a guest on this podcast, including Gareth Evans, Luis Arbour, and Rob's immediate predecessor, Jean-Marie Gehenno. Rob and I kick off discussing some of the priorities he'll emphasize as the group's new president, and also some of the major conflicts and crisis he's monitoring as we enter this new year. We then discuss his really unique upbringing. As Rob describes it, his father was a Jewish-Egyptian-Arab nationalist who became a public intellectual who advocated on behalf of colonized people around the world. And his father was actually kicked out of France, where Rob was living at the time, for reasons uh, Rob explains. Uh, Rob had a long career at the crisis group before becoming president. He also served in the national security staff of both the Clinton administration and in the Obama administration. And his last post in the White House was as the so-called ISIL czar, coordinating policy against the Islamic State. This is a good conversation. I was glad to catch up with Rob. We have some great digressions along the way about some historic foreign policy events in which Rob's career intersected, and it's a good talk. I think you'll enjoy it. As always, if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to me via the contact page on globaldispatchespodcast.com. And I do want to ask those of you who, let's say, are heavy consumers of the show to leave a review on iTunes. It really does help increase the search rankings of this show among people who are looking for foreign policy podcasts. So much appreciated uh, ahead of time, those of you who are able to leave a review on iTunes. All right. Now, here is my conversation with International Crisis Group President and CEO Robert Malley. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. For those who haven't heard your interviews with my predecessors, I just want to give a little sense of what Crisis Group is, because it's an organization that may not be as widely known, certainly in the United States, as we'd like it to be. But it's a, it's, it's a unique organization. That's why I was there for 12 years prior to joining the Obama administration, why I came back now. Uh, it's not a traditional think tank. It has attributes of a think tank in that it has people who are experts in regions from Africa to the Middle East, Latin America to Europe. It has attributes of an advocacy organization in that it has a line that it's trying to push in order to try to convince people to do certain things to either prevent, mitigate, or resolve deadly conflict. What it has that many others don't is that it has a presence on the ground in those countries that it covers. And that's what really drew me to it in the first place, which is you have people there, experts in Africa and Asia who live in you know, the DRC or who live in Zimbabwe, who live in Colombia, who live in Gaza, and who report as objectively and impartially as they can about what they see. They talk to everyone on the ground, groups that you know, frankly, U.S. officials can't talk to. They talk to ordinary citizens. They talk to rebel groups. They talk to government officials. 
And based on that, they say, you know what, here's the situation on the ground. Just forget what you might see in the headlines of newspapers or the sound bites. Here's really what we're seeing on the ground. Here's what is driving the actors to engage in the kind of behavior they're engaging in. We're not justifying it. We're not validating it. We're explaining it so that we then go to policymakers and to civil society and to other uh, uh, other actors and we say, here's the situation. Here's what you should do about it if your goal is to prevent, mitigate, or resolve deadly conflict. So it has sort of the mix of the journalistic sense of immediacy, of the academic sense of deep dives into issues, and the policy sense in terms of we're not simply writing uh, for an audience of academics or think tankers, we're writing for policymakers and those who can influence policy. And, and, and I should say to that end, I am an avid consumer of, of your reports. I have a file on my desktop, my very messy computer desktop that's just crisis group reports. And I'll add to it when I have a long flight in which I'll be offline and have the opportunity to take a deep dive into the PDFs you guys publish. It's, it's really a, a really valuable resource for me personally. So I, I hope you guys can just keep on keeping on. What, what are you going to well, do differently? Well, so yeah. I, I want to keep on keeping on what what's made it and what again what attracted me is that it's not sort of your your quick and dirty piece that just sort of delves in generalities. It tries really to understand what's happening, and I love that, and that's what I that's what drew me to. It. But at the same time, you know, I was in government for for three years under the Obama administration. I must admit that sometimes you know you read these long reports, some of the recommendations don't quite jive with what the policymaker is looking for. So what I want to do is make this. Uh, more to uh, uh, have a greater impact. So we want to write about issues that are on people's minds here, but also in Africa, Asia, Middle East, Europe, and write about them and in a way that's going to really grab the policymakers' attention with concrete, practical recommendations which are out of the box, but not off the wall, if I could put it that way. In other words, it's things that are going to break from the ordinary. Otherwise, why would we say it? Things that we think are sometimes controversial, but that we think are true and that have to be done, but not so impractical that a policymaker is going to look at it and say, thank you very much. Uh, that's going to be for another life. So it's that mix between pushing people out of their comfort zone, but not in a zone of unrealism. And, and I, so I, yeah. I, I mean, I guess to that end, like, how does an organization like yours measure its, its impact? That's a great question. And so I'm at my, my job, other than raising money, which is going to be a big job, and, and, and enhancing our profile and, and is going to be enhance, enhance our, our impact. And again, you do that in several ways. One way you do it is really, and, and sometimes I mean, there's some evidence of it, you come up with an answer with a solution that people think, hey, I haven't thought about this before. Let's give it a try. And we've done that you know, in Iran. There's one, one case where a lot of the work that the crisis group did, and I could say this because I was both at the front end helping to write the reports uh, with our analysts on the ground and then in, in the administration work on the Iran deal, a lot of the ideas that Crisis Group came up with were then used by, uh, by, by policymakers, not just here, but in Europe, uh, as, as, as input. Some of the ideas that we've come up with in terms of the Colombia peace process, some of the ideas that we've come up with in terms of Iraq or Afghanistan, either, you know, it's hard to measure. You know, I never would claim, oh, it's thanks to Crisis Group report that X happened, but we were a voice among others, and we help to mobilize other voices. And some ideas then make it into the mainstream. Some ideas that seem controversial today could be very accepted tomorrow because other things haven't worked. And we have the, uh, I think we have the credibility of having been in the field for now 20 years, that people trust us that we don't really have an agenda. Our only agenda really is conflict prevention, conflict revolution, resolution, and conflict mitigation. So we measure impact. Have we changed discourse? Have we changed people's attitudes? Have we changed people's actions? Sometimes it's a very indirect. You change, you mobilize the media. The media looks at something differently. And again, having been in two administrations, I know that officials pay attention to what the media says and they start thinking about it. So sometimes it's direct. You see an official, and it could be an official in a country that very few people cover. It could be in Uzbekistan, or it could be in uh, you know, it could be in, in in any country around the world. And those officials know that we pay attention to them. The embassies in those countries know that we pay attention to them. And I can tell you, you just said it, you're a consumer. I hear this all the time, which mm -hmm. is always gratifying, that people read what we write because they learn things from it. They, they, they want to see the recommendations. They do criticize our recommendations. They think that they're often not too practical. That's, again, part of my job is to make them more practical, more realistic, more implementable. Um, and they just say they they learn and can act based on what they've learned in our reports. But you're right. You're asking the question that, again, many of the people 
who fund us or who we ask to fund us ask, how do you measure our impact? And I think we have to do a better job describing it. But I think we have a case to make already about a number of conflicts where we've changed people's perceptions or where we've changed people's actions. And then we're going to be... Well, what's a, good, what, what's a good example of that? Can you, can you make that concrete well, for listeners? I mean, I, so, so I mentioned Iran, which is obviously one that I know very well. Back in 2003, I think it was as early as that, uh, this was under Gareth Evans. I was leading the, 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 the Middle East program at the time. Uh, we came out and we said, and remember at the time, the attitude of the U.S. and of the Europeans was that Iran should not be allowed to enrich at all. Mm-hmm. And the Iranians were saying, thank you very much. We're going to enrich. And they continued to enrich. And you had this race between sanctions on the one hand and uh, nuclear centrifuges on the other, which frankly didn't help anyone. I mean, you know, Iran's economy was... Uh, going down the tubes, and Iran's nuclear program was, 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 was skyrocketing. So that was not a good outcome. And we said at the time, having spoken not just to the Americans and Europeans and Russians and others, we spoke to the Iranians. We went to Iran, we spoke to them. We said, okay, this is an outcome that nobody's going to love, but everyone can live with, which is a limited, constrained, but gradually grow, growing uh, a nuclear program in Iran with, and as a counterpart, the gradual lifting of economic sanctions. And that was an idea that at the time I have to say both sides say, well, why would we accept this? Why would we accept that? But in the end, by 2014, 15, 16, uh, that's what became reality. And again, I'm not claiming that it was thanks to the reports, but I think that helped. It's a, part of the seeds of, of what became the, the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear exactly. deal. Exactly. Um, so that for me, I mean, obviously that's a good example. There are other examples that are not always uh, as successful, I mean, I wasn't I wasn't working on them at the time, but I do know that a lot of the work that was done, for example, on uh, on, on, on the Columbia peace process, which we followed uh, from very early on, some of the work that we did on the Afghan security sector. Sometimes we say things, and by the way, they're not listened to, and then after the fact, people say, well, maybe we should have. And if you look at our reporting on Iraq from the moment of the uh, U.S. pre-invasion to its invasion to its occupation to the disbanding of the Ba'ath Party, to the disbanding of the army. Each case we warned against what was what we felt was going to happen. It did happen. And then we offered uh, mitigating steps, which in some cases were implemented and others not. And I say so not, not to feather your nest too much, but your reporting, your, your team's reporting on Yemen, uh, you know, three years ago, like April yeah. Longley Alley and, and, and her work, uh, you okay. know, it's, it's predicted what, what's happened today. Yeah, and I would just say even more recently, uh, she wrote uh, uh, with, with, with our team a report that said, hey, for those of you who follow, who follow Yemen, there's a split brewing and a growing split between the two factions, the Saleh, the former president, and the Houthi, the Iran-backed or slightly Iran-backed uh, uh, militia group that has taken over parts of Yemen. That split can be positive if you work at it politically. It's going to backfire if you try to uh, provoke a, a confrontation between the two because the Houthis are just more powerful. They'll overpower uh, Saleh and everyone's going to be uh, worse off for it. Unfortunately, right. what happened is exactly that. Uh, there was an instigation of a, of, a, of a fight and the Houthis uh, overpowered Saleh's forces. But had people listened to, to us uh, before, maybe they could have maybe they could have uh, followed a smarter road. And I, this is not me taking credit for it. It's really the to the credit of the analysts on the ground who are doing really a labor of love for them. It's often very difficult, but they live in, in, in dangerous conditions. Uh, and But their goal is simply, you know, where their their loyalty is to the civilians who are suffering from conflict. And um, if we had a louder voice, which is, again, part of what I'm trying to do, hopefully people will listen to us before the fact rather than do what you just did, which is to say, oh, you were right in hindsight. But um, so, that's, that's, again, part of our part of our part of my job. So surveying the world in 2018, I mean, obviously, the crisis in North Korea, potential for nuclear con- confrontation, you know, looms large o- over everything. Uh, but I'm wondering from the kind of global perspective that the crisis group brings, are there any uh, conflicts or crises that are flowing under the radar that might have a big impact in world affairs in the coming months? I mean, great point, because part of what we do, and this has always been a debate at Christ Group, which is how much do we follow these sexier stories? I mean, today that would be, and we do follow them. What's happening in North Korea, what's happening in Syria, what's happening in Yemen, what's happening in Afghanistan, what's happening in those countries that everyone is following, and they're following it for good reason. As we say in, in, in a piece that I just wrote, the two biggest risks of conflict today are probably North Korea and the U.S.-Saudi-Iranian rivalry. But part of what we are 
designed to do is to ring alarm bells. And sometimes it could be far more effective there in conflicts that people are not following because they don't make the headlines. So, you know, there are places, what's happening now, which we, we really are focused on, is what's happening between Myanmar and Bangladesh, where you have 700,000 Rohingya who've been forced to flee Myanmar and are now in refugee camps in, in Bangladesh, one of the largest uh, refugee camps in the world, which obviously has a huge humanitarian component, which people, we hope they'll, they'll focus on, it, if only for that. But there's also conflict potential. You know, you have 700,000 people living in a crowded situation. You know, you have criminal gangs that could develop, you have instability could could develop, you have uh, uh, terrorist groups that could try to take advantage of it and, and foment instability in Myanmar with obviously implications in Bangladesh. So that's a, it's not, I wouldn't call it really below the radar, but it's certainly not one that, you know, people are talking about uh, day in, day out. You mentioned Yemen, again, not necessarily under the radar, but one that doesn't get the attention it deserves given both the humanitarian impact that, that the war is having, uh, you know, eight million people on the brink of famine, a million declared cholera cases, three million internally displaced people, and they really have a, a, a huge economic, uh, uh, social humanitarian catastrophe, and uh, with the risk of escalating war between Iran and Saudi Arabia, between the U.S. and Iran, as a result of things that might happen there. So we put the limelight on there, and then to sort of jump to situations that. The American public may not be following as much. Uh, the Sahel, uh, you know, where you have a number of countries that are mired in, in, in crisis having to do with the rise of jihadism, with uh, uh, just intercommunal conflicts, with fighting over uh, trafficking and smuggling routes, and where Western countries, European, but also the U.S., are increasingly involved, but in ways that we think are counterproductive because it's mainly or exclusively military responses sort of social, economic, and political problems. So um, I could list, go down the list. Mm -hmm. I, you know, if people want to look at it, just, just wrote a piece in foreign policy on the uh, 10 conflicts to watch, to pay attention to in 2018, go down the list. There are many more. I mean, this is a case, you know, we'd love it if we'd had to struggle to find 10 countries. In this case, there was a fight among our programs saying, what about, you know, what about Somalia? What about, uh, uh, you know, uh, hey, your, your first test as a president and, and CEO of the organization. Um, so, so you mentioned earlier that, you know, part of your remit is to do some policy advocacy and, and lobbying. And I'm wondering, uh, you know, having been around the block in Washington for, for a while, how your organization or even organizations like yours are required to calibrate their lobbying strategies in the face of, of the Trump administration, which is bringing all sorts of new uh, contingencies, let's say, to, to foreign policy issues. Like, how do you do advocacy in the, in the age of Trump? Well, again, much of our advocacy is not in the U.S. We did, we did start this year and. the it's not only because of President Trump. Frankly, I think it was something we should have done years ago. We, we inaugurated a U.S. program not to look, and hopefully we will not be looking at, uh, because it won't be necessary, conflict within the U.S., although there is always some, but um, but to look at the U.S. role not just as a conflict mitigator or, or uh, mediator, but also as a conflict contributor in the world. And so we've, do, we've started that just a few, two, three months ago. Um, and that, but so we are going to be doing more work on, on U.S. policy because in the age of Trump. But again, as I said, I think that was true with the Iraq War. It's true with President Obama's attitude towards Syria or others. We need to spend more time understanding, deciphering, predicting, and criticizing, and sometimes suggesting alternative, or always suggesting alternatives to U.S. policy where we think it's it's contributing to conflict rather than to its resolution. So our advocacy will be in the U.S., it's, but I want to make clear that much of our advocacy, the majority, takes place around the world, at the U.N., in European capitals, and in the countries where we work, from Israel to Colombia to Afghanistan to uh, 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 DRC. In the age of, Now, if, you, if we focus on the U.S., I want to make clear we're not a partisan organization, right? So... Uh, we're not. Our job is not to undermine, undercut, criticize what President Trump does, other than in instances where we think it's warranted, which unfortunately at this point has been quite a few. But we're prepared to tell them they did the right thing when they did the right thing. We were in favor of the lifting of the sanctions uh, on Sudan. Uh, not necessarily the most popular decision, but we thought it was the right thing. Mm -hmm. We said it. It's what the, the administration did. And uh, we have to give them credit when they when they do the right thing. Um but it is more difficult, although I think as many of you, uh, the audience knows, 
the, the Trump administration, a lot of the people who are working in it, the State Department in particular, they're people who've been there, they're, they're, they're civil servants, they're foreign service folks who've been there under President Bush, Obama, Trump. They're a lot of the people we work with. We give them Unless ideas. they've been sent to the FOIA department. Um, yes, and I know one in particular, a friend of mine who has, but, the, so they're, they're, but they're still, that's not under, you know, they can't undo everything on day one. There's still a lot of people there who are working uh, uh, and, and who are doing the right thing. And a lot of issues, by the way, don't make it to the president's desk or to the national security advisor's desk. They're delegated, they're relegated to lower levels. And those lower levels haven't changed all that much. And we could have a lot of influence, we think, with them, particularly if what we're saying is, this is not an anti-Trump or pro-Obama. This is what we think is good for not just U.S. interests, but mainly for the interests of conflict uh, resolution around the world. So in your uh, letter introducing yourself and your intentions as uh, the new president and CEO of the Crisis Group, you reference your unique upbringing as an asset that you'll bring to help inform how you'll lead the, the organization. So I want to talk about that a little bit. So uh, where were you born? Um, what, what did your parents do? Where did your parents come from? So, I mean, I come from a pretty uh, mixed, uh, complicated background, but as I think many, many citizens of this country do. Uh, my father was uh, born in Egypt. He was an Egyptian Jew who left Egypt in the 1940s. Uh, my mother is American, of East, East European uh, descent, born in New York. And then early on, my father moved to, to Paris with all of us. He's uh, a journalist. So I grew up in, in, in France. So very international upbringing, and my father being a journalist met, spent much of my time meeting with uh, folks from Africa, from the Middle East. Um, he was actually expelled from France, uh, oddly enough, a, a rare American journalist who was expelled from France because of his writing. What, so what, well, to... what, what was he, who expelled <laughs> him? And, and Tali, talk a little bit more, because you said this that he the, was a uh, Jewish-Egyptian Arab nationalist, which, correct. in like, what, the age of Nasser? No, um... This is this is. I mean, his his. He was not an, He was not living in uh, in in in. Or he was not active at the time. Uh, this was main, This was in the. Um, he had left already in the forties, so uh, he didn't work with or for Nasser. He was an Arab nationalist who didn't feel particularly Egyptian, by the way. I don't think he. I think he returned, maybe two or three times to Egypt after he left, and never with uh, you know never with the intent of staying there. He didn't. He didn't really have a citizenship. In fact, he had probably ten passports because he worked with many countries, and they gave him passports as he worked with them. This is, part, you know, he was sort of a uh, different kind of or, or a special kind of person, and so he had, I think, about ten different passports. Well, what about, would what I would he do with these with with the the countries? Like, what what you said he was he was a journalist, but a, a bit he, of an activist can, as well. He considered himself. A different kind of journalist than I think uh, many here would consider himself. He considered himself a militant journalist. He was a journalist with a cause. His cause was a third world. His cause was, during the age of colonialism and neocolonialism, he viewed himself as part of that movement. And so he started his own magazine. And his magazine was uh, sort of a progressive uh, third worldist magazine that took many positions that are very controversial in this country. I don't like it mention a few um but that's how he viewed himself his his mission was not to report the news it was to uh sort of mobilize people behind the causes that he believed in so what would be like a good example of that uh he was uh so certainly in the algerian where he early on where he was very militant is with north african countries that were fighting against french colonialism uh, that's in the in the 50s uh, in the 60s, 70s, you know, he was very close, again, with the Algerians, but he was close to the Palestinians. He was close to the Angolan government when it was uh, uh, fighting against uh, rebels. He was uh, close to the Cubans. He was so, I mean, you, you get the picture, right? Uh, yeah, that, yeah. Kind, that kind of uh, third worldist personality. But so I grew up in that environment, mm -hmm. which I don't say, you know, it's not a matter of did I agree with everything, did I buy all the ideas? But it was a very international, global environment, which, again, I think the fit with Crisis Group was was right for me because it is a, you know, I'm an American. I worked in two U.S. administrations. When I'm in the administration, I'm pro uh, promoting U.S. interests. I pr profoundly believe that. But I also think that I, from my upbringing, I, I, I was a, I'm able to put myself in other people's shoes, shoes of some shoes that are very uncomfortable. But again. Uh, you know, through 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 my father and his interactions, and just from living in Europe. 
So do you and, have like kind of growing up like a steady stream of like, you know, you know, anti-colonialist left-wing radicals kind of coming through the, the house? Sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Africa. Do you ever meet, Africa. you ever meet Fidel? I did not know. Oh, okay. Um, um, but, but, but I'll tell you something, which is, uh, you know, the first Palestinian I ever met. And this is in 1981, maybe or 82 was Yasser Arafat, the first of Palestinian. Um, uh, I didn't understand what he said because he spoke in Arabic, unfortunately, but he was talking to my father. I think we were meeting in Algeria. But so that it was not that I saw him in our house or that he came that often, but you know, Algerian militants, uh, Angolan militants from Mozambique, from uh, uh, Madagascar, from, you know, you name it. Again, I was young. I was in Paris between the ages of six and 17. So my latter years were more, I probably was more politically conscious, but, you know, I imbibed that uh, that 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 culture and that environment, and it's. Uh, I wrote a book about it. But well, the book was not just about that; it was about Algeria. But it's called uh, um, uh, uh, "The Turn to Islam: Algeria." And, uh, I can't remember the title; it's been that long. But uh, uh, it's about it's about the rise of third worldism and then the decline of third worldism. What happened to all those revolutionary ideologies that were? so popular in the 70s and then just crashed because they failed, because they became dictatorial, because the promise that they had uh, at one point uh, stood for uh, basically evaporated. Um, or, or you could say like, or like the case like of Algeria where the revolutionary group becomes the government, like becomes the man, right? Well, right. And so, uh, you know, whether it's, whether it's Algeria, whether it's Angola, whether it's, you know, whether it's even, uh, well, you pick the country None of those countries that had those that stood for, you know, quite whether one agreed with them or not, they were quite uh, uh, ambitious, aspirational, um, positive goals of equality and justice, and then devolved often into one man dictatorships, uh, autocratic regimes that whose only goal was the perpetuation of their own power. Um, and I think that's, you know, that was part of the disenchantment and disillusionment of that movement. I think it also so, had an impact on my father but but um well what did he, he do to get kicked out of france i, I wish i knew the, the exact story this was when giscard d'Estaing was president of france so this is in 1980 uh, towards the end of his time in office or his first term in office he never had a second one and my father was writing a lot for those of your of our audience who are old enough to remember there was this time story about the emperor of central africa bokassa who had there was some diamond controversy. The French had taken diamonds from him, or I can't even remember the controversy. But there was a big controversy about him and diamonds and corruption. And my father had written a lot about that. He also had written a lot about uh, the. Uh, he was very opposed to some North African uh, regimes, uh, the, the, the Moroccan and others that were very close to the French. So the official reason that the French government gave, which was quite unique, I'm not sure that there are many other American journalists who fell under that. Uh, that, that rule was that he had violated the obligation of reserve or of uh, how you pronounce how you would translate reserve sort of uh, you know respecting the norms that any foreigner living in France uh, needs to abide by and wow. so he had, basically that he had insulted uh, countries and leaders that the French were close to um, but you know as luck had it he was expelled in October 2000, uh, in 1980 by May 1981, uh, François Mitterrand, the socialist candidate, was elected president of France, and my father came back within a week or two. So it was a six-month exile, which they put him on a plane to, to New York. He never set foot in New York. He took the next plane to Geneva, where he continued to run his magazine. So it was a bit of so, a... So did, did you grow up, though, mostly in, in France at the time? Is that right? I never... Because by the time he was expelled... Uh, I was uh, in college in the U.S. So I came back. I basically have lived back in the U.S. from 1980 on with a, a short foray into, in the U.K. But from 1980 till today, I've lived in the U.S. So I just Men have to imagine, like, the milieu in which you grew up in um, sort of predestined, in a way, a career in foreign affairs. Uh, yes, although it could have taken many different – I went to law school, and I thought of uh, very – I thought of becoming a lawyer. I was thinking of becoming a defense attorney. I worked at the ACLU in Southern California, where I did had a great year, um, clerked for a number of judges. So, I, I when 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 people ask me what's the route towards a career in foreign service or in uh, foreign policy, 
my answer, which is not very satisfactory, is both serendipity and just where your heart leads you. And I could have gone in different directions, but um, uh, this was my passion, but I was not at all convinced that somebody would pay me to follow my passion. And that's something that I um, am enormously grateful for. And I, uh, you know, I pinch myself every now and then and say, you know, I'm being paid to read, write, talk, and try to explain things that I would like to read, write, and talk about for free. So, you know, uh, and I do it with a great organization. So I'm, I'm very, you know, I'm very grateful for that, but I could have, you know, I could have been doing something very different and just continued reading and writing about foreign policy without necessarily having it been my profession. What was your, your first, um, real foreign policy job then? Well, the first one was in the, uh, in the Clinton administration. How did, uh, how did you, you land that? Because I, I had a, uh, a fellowship with the Council on Foreign Relations, um, I think they still do it, which is a fantastic program where they give not huge amounts of money, but enough to live to people who are not in government to spend a year in government and for people who are in government to spend a year outside of government at a think tank or at a, you know, any world institution. Um, and I got it uh, uh, after, my, uh, after my clerkship in D.C. And... Um, Again, just I got it and I decided I'd love to go work at the White House. This was the early Clinton years. I had a number of friends who'd worked in the campaign, who were in the administration. So I joined uh, the National Security Council staff, worked for Mort Halperin, again, for people who mm-hmm. old enough to know he's a legend. And he lived up to his, his legendary status when I worked for him, just was uh, exceptionally smart and enormously talented and and, and, uh, and wise and knowledgeable person. And I worked with him in what was called the Office of Democracy, which gave me the title that to this day I probably find the most appealing, which was Director for Democracy, which I thought was a <laughs> nice and, 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 and nice title to have. Um, and from then on, I got to know, uh, I stayed on after the fellowship, the, 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 the White House yeah. staff was, was nice enough to, to keep me on. And I started working on Cuba. I worked on Haiti. And then I worked, I got to know Sandy Berger, who was then Deputy National Security Advisor under Clinton, soon became National Security Advisor, and I, I became his uh, his special assistant, which gave me a, a bird's eye view on, our on U.S. foreign policy across the world. On, 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 on pretty much everything. You know, um, so I, I should say also with, with uh, Mort Halperin, um, he was influential to me early in my career. He wouldn't even remember me, but I met him once and got some funding from OSI to, to do a reporting project that really helped shape my career in, in a big way. So if you're listening out there, Mort, thank you. Um, and he might remember because he ha- also has an exceptional memory, <laughs> as I've discovered. Um, so... What, so, so in those early Clinton years, could you was, was there a, any specific sort of policy or or uh, impact that you can look back on and think that you made a, a real difference on? Oh, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. I was pretty junior at the time. I could tell you what I worked on. I don't know that I made a difference, but well, what we early on what we were trying to do was to begin to normalize relations with Cuba. I mean, it really struck me that basically every cabinet member. I remember I was at a meeting where President Clinton. I was very early on. This was in 1995 or six. Uh, President Clinton assembled most, not all, but a number of members of his cabinet and uh, went around the room and asked them how many of them thought that we should maintain the embargo against Cuba. And not one of them thought we should. And was, you know, and so basically the question was, well, why are we still doing it? And obviously domestic politics uh, was, and I, then my, my good friend, George Stephanopoulos, who was working in the White House at the time, sort of summarizes and, 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 and explained to everyone, not that they needed the explanation, but that was, and so we were, I was working with Mort Halpern on what can be done to try to uh, take steps to begin to lessen and loosen an embargo that was not fulfilling our goals in Cuba, hurting the Cuban people and not helping U.S. interests. Um, Then what happened was the shoot down of a plane of Cuban dissidents, the Brothers to the Rescue, outside of Cuban territorial waters, they, and uh, that set the relationship back by quite a bit. But that, for me, I'm not sure what my contribution was. My contribution was first to try to help normalize and then to try to uh, adjust to the situation where we were in a very hostile relationship, again, with the Cuban government. But um, it was, for me, a very instructive period about the intersection of foreign and domestic policy, which, when I then, in 98, focused on what for me, it was the main, what, what I really was passionate about at the time, which was the Israeli Arab uh, conflict and the Israeli Palestinian conflict in particular. Obviously, another case where domestic politics play a crucial role. And it was 
that I had had my first lesson uh, a few years earlier on Cuba. So again, I don't, you know, uh, when you're a member of a team like the national security staff, I think it's a, it's a bit, uh, showing a bit of hubris to say I was responsible for X. I was part of the team that, that worked on Israeli Arab negotiations, Syria, Palestinian, uh, negotiations at Camp David, uh, and I tried my best to inject, again, where, where I thought I could be useful was trying to uh, promote U.S. interests, promote the interest of trying to resolve the conflict, but also being able to explain to some members uh, of the team sort of where I thought the Palestinian perspective was, because I had somewhat uh, fami- some familiarity with it. Um, but again, you know, we didn't reach an agreement, so I'm not going to claim a great contribution there. Uh, but it was, you know... Uh, on? working with President Clinton, working on that issue, that's one of the highlights of my I mean, on, on the, on the, the, the uh, Israel-Palestine issue and, and, and the Camp David Accords, you know, in what, the 18 years, 17 years since the Camp David Accords, it seems that U.S. domestic policy has only sort of hardened um, toward, on, on that issue. And I'm just wondering if they're, you know, absent any sort of change in U.S. domestic policy, if you see any opportunities for... Um, you know, for, for the promise of that, that Camp David Accord of, of the two state solution in the near future. So, so I wish we could call it Camp David Accord. Unfortunately, yeah. there was no, accord. well, so I mean the Camp David summit, Camp uh, David summit that ended. Right. Yeah, in, no, no, in, in I, failure, I, yeah. I wish, uh, I wish that were right. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I don't know that domestic policy is hard. I think we're now in an administration that, uh, that is sort of like, maybe it's an aberration on this. I don't know, but it's obviously at this point, not taking steps that are, in my view, going to be very uh, productive when it comes to, to promoting Israeli-Palestinian peace. But I would not put the major uh, problem today in the U.S. I mean, it would you could imagine a very different U.S. I, I, I'm not sure that that's in, in our lifetime, but I think the major problem today, and it's been true for some time, is on the ground. It's Israeli policies, the Palestinian leadership, uh, the, 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 the incentive structure on those sides, on, 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 in the re, in, among acting, uh, actors in conflict, that is not unfortunately leading towards uh, the two-state solution that we envisaged at Camp David, and that I just came back from just came back from Israel a couple of weeks ago, went on a family uh, visit. That's, that was my vacation uh, to Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, Hebron, Bethlehem. I have to say, and you know, people always ask me, "Is the two-state solution dead?" And my answer, and I, it's it, it's one that I genuinely have felt, is to say, I don't know. Who's going to be the person to pronounce the the death certificate? How does some how does an idea like that die? As long as people believe in it, as long as what you're trying to reverse was done by the actions of men and women, why can't they be reversed by the actions of men and women? So if a settlement has been built, why can't you reverse it? If a terrorist organization exists, why can't you take actions against it? You know that has been my philosophy, and I still believe it to some extent. Although I have to say spending a week in, in Israel in the occupied territories, it becomes harder and harder to say with a straight face that you believe that one believes that a two-state solution is uh, plausible anymore. And, you know, it, it, it breaks my heart to say that because I don't know what the alternative is, but what's happening on the ground and what's happening in people's minds, and that's been going on for some time, is just so antithetical to what would need to happen uh, to, to, to reach a two-state solution. Now, it's viable. I mean, you could have a sort of a Mickey Mouse Palestinian state, but if you have one that's viable, that's going to serve its own people, but also be able to serve the cause of, of, of security uh, for Israel as well and be stable and be accepted by the constituents on the ground. I think to get there today, um, I have to say, I, 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 you know, I'm in the job of coming up with practical solutions. So I'm not going to bury the two-state solution on this show but uh, it's a real challenge for an organization like ours, as it was a challenge, uh, as it's a challenge, I think, for policymakers around the world. You know, you could keep trying to, to, to say the two-state solution is an idea that we need to keep alive. It's the one that we believe in and we have to fight for it. At some point, the only people believing it are the ones uh, outside of Israel-Palestine. Nobody there really believes in it anymore. Nobody there thinks it's going to happen. Very few people think it's going to happen. So you stick to an idea long after the idea has ceased believing in itself. I think that that creates uh, that creates problems uh, because then diplomacy becomes completely detached from what's happening. And for as I say, for an organization like Crisis Group that is in the business of uh, pro, you know controversial if it, if need be, but always realistic solutions. You know, we we've 
been saying for some time. We got, and we helped. I helped write a report years ago that, that was the title was "The Emperor Has No Clothes." And basically, was let's stop pretending that by doing, you know, let's uh, another peace, another peace summit, another meeting between Palestinians and Israeli leaders, another initiative that that's going to get us anywhere. At some point, people have to say every trend line is going in the opposite direction. The dynamic forces on the ground in Israel, in Palestine, in the U.S. Although in the U.S. it could be changing, but a lot of dynamic forces are leading us in a different direction. And at that point, you really have to ask the hard questions, then what do we do? So so presumably you wrote that report while you were working for the crisis group uh, in the first first round of, of your working for the crisis group, which lasted many years, correct? Correct During the um, 12, 12 years, okay. Uh, so I'm wondering, in, in that time, what did your time outside of government working on these issues tell you about the constraints of being in government and trying to um, advance sort of innovative or outside the box ideas on some of these, you know, global crises. My time out, how my time outside influenced my time inside or the other way around, which, what do you, either. Yeah. Either any, both. So, well, no, I mean, I, I, and I say this in in something I just wrote uh, as as a message. I think, you know, one really helps the other when you're uh, outside of government, you really do have the ability if you want to do it. And which is what crisis group does of talking to everyone and, and, and speaking in non-diplomatic ways. So really asking the tough questions and talking to people, you know, I spoke to leaders of Hamas and Hezbollah, but also and obviously Israeli leaders and Israeli leaders, Israeli politicians from the extreme right. I mean, I truly believe you just talk to everyone. We haven't spoken to Al-Qaeda or ISIS and that may be a, a bridge too far, but otherwise we really have as a philosophy talk to everyone. So you get, and I think that I brought that perspective into government. Now, it doesn't mean that I come into government and say, we need to talk to all these people, but it means that you have a sense of how they're going to react and what is their real power on the ground. And again, something we've been saying, uh, it's true in Iraq, it's true in Afghanistan, it's true in, in, in Palestine, that sometimes the people that government officials, U.S. government officials tend to talk to, tend to parrot what U.S. officials say, tend to say what U.S. officials want them to say, tend to be educated in the West because they, they, you know, they tend to speak English. And so it becomes uh, sort of a, 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 an echo chamber of we talk to those who tend to be most like the ones we want to talk to because they're more like us. When you're in an organization like Crisis Group, and that's why I encourage everyone who's on this, uh, who's listening to this program to, to, to read our reports, you get the other perspective. You get the perspective of those people who truly don't want to talk like the U.S. wants them to talk, who truly don't want to say what the U.S. wants to hear, and often have far more ability to affect things on the ground or to prevent things on the ground than those we talk to. It's true in Palestine. It's true in Lebanon. It's true in Iraq. It's true in Afghanistan. It's true in one place after another that I've, that I've encountered. And so, I, you know, you come into government, and for as long as that memory lasts, you can say, this is a great plan. The first time it's, gonna, it's going to rub uh, shoulders or go, touch ground with reality, it's going to fail because this party, that party, these actors have different interests. This is what's driving them. And this is how they have the ability to counter what you're doing. And so I, I do think I brought that to the administration, um, you know, whether it, how much it helped or didn't. But I do think that there was a voice at the table. I suspect that, you know, I was, uh, you know there were very few people who'd had that kind of, of background. But the other way works too, as well. You know, you're in government and you learn that it's not always easy. To, you, know, you know, when I, and that's why I, I, I'm rebelling in my own organization against recommendations that are vague or that are unrealistic and they just say, oh, all you have to do is X, you know, be more inclusive or uh, respect human rights or follow, you know, when you're in government, th- that kind of advice doesn't really help. Mm-hmm. You have to be practical. You have to think about you know, what are the constraints? What are the national interests? What are the relationships we need to preserve? We do have to preserve our relationship with Israel, with Saudi Arabia, with traditional allies, however complicated they are. And we're not, no administration is simply going to say, oh, we're going to do a 180 and completely change our alliances. No, there's reasons why those alliances have been built and as problematic as, as they may be. And so having been in government, I come out and say, these, you have to be more uh, specific. You have to be more practical, you have to take into account what are the realities, and not just for the U.S. administration, but for a European or for an African. And so I think that, and and, and because Crisis Group wants Mm -hmm. to be at the intersection of analysis and policy, 
I think that's why, and we have a great mix here of people who've been in government and people who've been out of government and people who've done both. So let me, in our, in our last couple of minutes, ask you about your time in the Obama administration. And your last post was as the ISIS czar. Is that right? I, I never lost my other position, which was White House coordinator for uh, Middle East, North Africa and Gulf region. But I was I added to it. Well, the, how, uh, how did you end up joining the Obama administration? So and I, uh, I've had. Uh, quite a few connections to the Obama world. Um, I went to law school. Uh, I was in the class of, of, of then uh, non-president Barack Obama, although he became president of the Law Review. But that's how I got to know him, because we overlapped for one year on Law Review. Yeah. Um, I was part of the class that elected him president of Law Review. So I there you actually... Go. You're one of the first voters for Obama. There you go. Yeah, three times. Um, well, that's great. Uh, so I got to know him then. Then what happened, and this is, I think, a vignette which which uh, will enlighten a lot of what we were saying earlier. Um, I was part of, you know, not a particularly central part, but like all candidates, Barack Obama had a number of advisors on foreign policy. I think he had like 300. I was one of them. Um, normally these are anonymous. My name came out. Somebody wrote a piece in the Time or Newsweek mentioning his Middle East advisors and trying to say that some of them were controversial and mentioned me. And then there was an article that said that I had uh, spoken to the leadership of Hamas and one of these London, you know, UK you know, hit pieces that claimed that I was there on behalf of the Obama administration. <laughs> I was talking to the leadership of Hamas on behalf of the Obama administration. But like what you was, do for a living is talk to groups like Hamas. I mean, exactly. Yeah. So that, but... You know the the Obama but, campaign because I, they're like they're still you know an officially designated terrorist group and of course at the time if people remember you know there are all these charges that Obama was like a secret Muslim terrorist you know all that all that Michigan and just to make clear there's no law barring talk with a terrorist uh, member of a terrorist organization there's a law barring any material contribution so I always stayed on the legal side of that line but there's no law barring you to talk to them um, so I did talk to them and then there was this story saying aha it's talking to them talking to them on behalf of the administration. I think we reached the, the understanding with the Obama campaign uh, that this was a distraction and a costly one because people were using it against him. So uh, I stepped down from the campaign. Again, as you say, it was odd because, as I said, this was uh, I stepped down for something that I never hid that I had done. I'd written countless articles saying this is what I'm hearing from Hamas leaders. I did it because I said it was part of my job. I, I would have had to resign from crisis group if I said, oh, I can't talk to anyone that is going to be controversial in the U.S. But anyway, that was part of the reason why between 2009 and 2014, uh, despite the fact that I had a huge number of friends um, in the administration, um, I was not in. I think by 2014, that had become somewhat past history. And the fact is, if you could go, if you go read the pieces that were written at the time of my appointment in 2014, I think I have a lot of friends, people I respect and people who respect me who are on the other side of whatever debate that is, I mean, whether they're Israeli or whether they're Americans, who would say, from my work at Crisis Group, that we don't, we're not sort of these, uh, we don't do a hatchet job, we don't engage in ad hominem attacks. We try to report, and then our opinions may differ, but I think they respected the work we did. So I don't think that when I was appointed in 2014, it created much of a controversy. Uh, again, time had passed, and I think People who people expected to be upset didn't seem to be. Yeah, no, I, I don't recall any any uh, yeah. controversy at the time. But so I, I joined in 2014. I started by working mainly on Iran, Iraq, and the Gulf. A few months later, I took on Syria as well, and then a few months later, I took on the region as a whole. And then a few a year later or two years later. Um, I was a senior advisor for the counter-ISIL campaign as well. So, so can I just ask, in, in maybe our, our last minute, um, about the future of ISIS, what, what sort of its next generation now that it seems to have been um, defeated mostly on the battlefield? So, I mean, my view of ISIS has always been that it's a multi-headed organization. I and mean, This is not something that's that revolutionary, but it is quite a, partly a state. You know, it built its caliphate. It's partly uh, a terrorist organization, or let's say second, it's partly an insurgency, I and mean, that's it acted as an insurgency in Syria and Iraq and in, in some in Libya and elsewhere, a few other places. It's partly a terrorist organization, it engages in terrorist actions, and it's partly an inspirer of terrorist actions by others with whom it may have a pretty distant relation, whether it's folks in Brussels or terrorists in Brussels or in France or, or elsewhere. Of those four components, 
The first is and was on the verge of or on the path to defeat under President Obama, and, and the Trump administration has continued in some ways intensified that campaign uh, for better and for worse. And uh, uh, so that that piece of it, sort of the territorial piece, the quasi-state piece, that one is virtually in our rearview mirror. Not quite, but it will be soon. That leads us to three other dimensions, and those are the three we have to worry about: the counterinsurgents, the insurgency. Sorry. Uh, the terrorists and the terrorist inspirer. And those three are not going away. And I think we're going to continue to see them. But again, the difference between being in government and a, and a crisis group, uh, if I want to conclude on this, when you're, and, and I think it's a very healthy dynamic between the two. When you're at crisis group, as I am today, our message to the administration, to governments in the region, to other governments in Europe and others to say, you want to defeat those three other components of, of ISIS, its insurgency capacity, its terrorists, and its terrorist inspiration. You're not going to do that solely or even mainly through military means. You're going to do that through political means. You're going to do it through social means. You're going to do it by addressing some of the causes that, 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 uh, and the chaos that ISIS exploits. You have to resolve the conflicts in Syria and Yemen and Libya and address some of the, the other issues. That's a message that the, the governments have to hear. They have to listen to. But let's be honest. When you're in government, that's a nice thing to think about, and you do some things about it. But you also think about the next day and the next week and the next uh, and the next month. And there, the metrics are going to be: what have you done to defeat militarily the enemy that uh, that that is ISIS? So that's why you tend to go more into body counts and how many people have you killed and how many leaders have you killed and you know how many, these, these data metrics. Now that matters, and unfortunately, maybe it matters too much, but it does matter. And I've, I've written about this, which is how sort of every administration, including the Obama administration, get, becomes uh, overly, uh, uh, in my view, uh, preoccupied by those metrics and by that agenda. But uh, you know, even somebody like President Obama, who probably was the most sober, reasonable, rational person I've met in that certainly in in in, in a senior capacity, who understood the real risks of terrorism, but also the risk of hyping the threat of terrorism and of distorting our policies and our politics as a result of the terrorist threat. But even he felt at the, at, at, over time he had to do more, he had to do much more, uh, because otherwise he would be viewed as being indifferent to something that Americans believe is a huge threat. I mean, they, you know, the, the, the media plays its part in it in, in, in maybe in, in exaggerating the threat. And therefore, um, I think it's that interaction. I think, yes, governments are going to do more because they have a short time span and they have a more sort of military you know, metric to looking at things. That's gonna, and, and I tell my colleagues at Crisis Group, yes, you could criticize that. Understand that no government can, can continue if it is ignoring and dismissing the preoccupations of its electorate, even if those preoccupations may seem somewhat irrational or somewhat exaggerated. But at the same time, I tell my colleagues and former colleagues in government, uh, friends in government or others in government, that's true. But if you ignore all these other issues that we're bringing to your attention, there's going to be a reprieve. There's going to be a period where ISIS is going to go underground. And then in a year, two years, we're going to face the same problem with a different iteration of the same organization. Uh, well, Rob, thank you so much for your time. And I, I really look forward to seeing uh, how the next iteration of Crisis Group evolves under your tenure and just, you know, keep up the the great work at crisis group we all we all depend on it thank you thank you really enjoyed the conversation and uh hope to talk to you again soon all right thank you all for listening thank you to rob and onwards we have some, some great shows lined up for you guys so stay tuned all right see you soon bye The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of Humanity in Action.